before Thanksgiving for Christmas. How many of you, it's, that's okay? How many of you, that's not okay? That is definitely not, it's against the law, it's against the rules, okay? I'm, I'm in a pre-Thanksgiving, you know, myself. I'm okay with November 1st. November 1st, you can start the hot chocolate, you can start the, the Christmas carols, you, you can start decorating if you want. Uh, but regardless of where you decorate or how or when or whatever it is, we all know that the holidays are just around the corner, Right? Uh, we're in the month that Thanksgiving is in, and I love Thanksgiving. Uh, I love the food. I love the football. I love family. I mean, I mean, what's not to love about it? And there's this tradition that's around Thanksgiving. I don't know if, if you do it yourself, but you, uh, you actually take some time and, you, and you're thankful, okay? <laughs> so it kind of goes hand in hand with the holiday. And I don't know if, if you, you know, write out a thank you list. Uh, perhaps your family gets together and you exchange kind of what you're thankful for. Our family does that. Uh, we sit around the, the Thanksgiving table and we all kind of take turns saying things that we're thankful for. And I've learned this. Some years that's easy. Some years it's easy just to list, I mean, all the ways that life is good. You know, that how God is blessed and the job is good and the kids are good and, and the health is good. And it's just so easy to see God's blessings uh, but other years, that's not so easy. It's not that there's no blessings in your life. It's not that there's nothing to be thankful for. But the reality is sometimes you get to this season, you get to the Thanksgiving month, and life is hard, and the money is tight, and you got a bad diagnosis from the doctor, or the kids just are struggling, or there's an empty seat for the first time in that holiday season. And how, how are you thankful in moments like that? In moments where really you kind of scratch your head and you say, I don't get it, or perhaps even internally, you're thinking to yourself, like, I don't even know that God cares or if I'm going to make it through. And you come to church and sing, you know, count your blessings or something like that. And you think, like, count your, yeah, right. Like, I, I, I don't get it. I don't know what God's doing. How do you in those moments be thankful for what feels like nothing? What, what feels like you, you can't be thankful. Here's the question of this whole series, really, is how do you maintain your spiritual composure and how do you remain thankful when you feel like life just served you up a nothing burger? How, how do you still remain thankful when it feels like, I, I just don't know, it's tough this year. And that's what we're going to look at the life of Joseph. I want you to look at Genesis 37 with me this morning as we start this study. If there's ever a man who taught us how to be thankful in the midst of nothing, I dare say it's this man. And this morning we're going to look at this topic. It's thanks for my dysfunctional family. And I know that not all of you would say that you came from a dysfunctional family, uh, but we're going, to look at, we're going to look at this topic. I think it has a, a lot of implications just for relationships in general and how you can be thankful for even the hurt and pain that comes at you in life through other people. Genesis uh, chapter 37, look at verse number 1 if you would. This picks up the story of Joseph when he's 17 years old, and it says that Jacob, this is Joseph's dad, dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren or with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah and his father's wives. Now, just the fact that there's, you know, father's wives, that's, that can show you some of the dysfunction already. And Joseph brought into his father their evil report. So Joseph comes to dad and is like, dad, like, these guys, like my stepbrothers, they're, they're, they're not, like, loving Jesus, okay? Like, this, this is not good, what they're doing, what they're saying. 
verse 3. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob. Uh, Israel loved Joseph, his son, more than all his children. That's not really a great thing to do, by the way. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably unto him. So let's just stop there. The Bible cuts to the chase immediately and begins to depict the dysfunction in this home. And by the way, I do think that every home is dysfunctional to some degree. And that's because homes are made up of mommy sinners and daddy sinners who produce baby sinners. And with all that sin comes mess, comes baggage, comes some form of dysfunction. But all homes are not equally dysfunctional, okay? And Joseph is is in a home that is highly dysfunctional, so much so that if you made his life into a soap opera, like, no one would believe it. Joseph lives in the same household as three stepmothers, ten stepbrothers, one full-blooded brother, and then a stepsister. His father, Jacob, was kind of generally a godly guy, but he embraced polygamy that was common in his day, and this polygamy opens the door to jealousy and insecurity and infighting and constant conflict among these women Joseph also had a dad who was a very passive parent. Uh, Jacob was not highly engaged in his boys' lives. His leadership, or lack thereof, brought incredible pain and incredible confusion to his family. Joseph's brothers took turns being brutal, being conniving, being openly immoral. If you want to get just a, a little glimpse into the craziness of his, of his home, you can read on your own time the next chapter, Genesis 38, which tells a little bit of the life of Judah, the fourth-born boy, one of Joseph's stepbrothers, one of the ones who want to kill him here in a little bit. That It tells the story of Judah, and it portrays Judah in no uncertain terms as resentful and manipulative and immoral and he goes to, the, to great lengths to actually want to kill his, his, uh, his daughter-in-law. He wants to burn her at the stake. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. You read that passage and you just think like, what is happening? And this is the family that Joseph comes from. And you see immediately in this story the hatred that the brothers have for Joseph, largely due to the favor of dad and the special coat that Jacob has given to Joseph. And every child who's been around church for any length of time has heard stories of the coat of many colors. But there's a backstory to this tunic that you need to know. Reuben was the oldest brother, the one who was in line for the birthright. And Reuben, in Genesis 35, forfeits his birthright when he decides to sleep with his father's concubine, Billa. And just the fact that dad has a concubine is, is crazy enough. But in this gross act of immorality, Jacob exercises his fatherly privilege and removes the birthright from his firstborn Reuben and decides to give the birthright to his firstborn of a different woman, the firstborn of Rachel, who is Joseph, the 11th youngest, the youngest at the time. And when he does this, obviously the other brothers are not happy. And the coat of many colors that Joseph wears is more than Jacob's weekend, you know, arts and crafts project where he tried to try his hand at tie-dye. This is a coat that was representative of the birthright, representative of the position of what Joseph has inherited, and his brothers hate him for it. 
And they don't secretly hate him. Like it says very clearly in verse 4, they can't speak peaceably unto him. Like they let him know that they hate him. Fast forward with me, if you will, and let's read verse number 18. Joseph has just had some dreams, and in these dreams, uh, God tells Joseph that he's going to, in fact, have a position of privilege, and his brothers will actually be subject unto him. And he, like, announces it to the world, and of course, the brothers, you know, like their little brother even less because of, of these dreams he has. In verse number 18, it says this, as Joseph is going to check on his brothers as they tend to sheep, it says, they saw Joseph coming from afar off, <clears throat> And even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him, which means that they're like, let's kill him. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. Are you in? I'm in. Let's kill him. Verse 19, they said one to another, behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, let us slay him. Let us cast him into some pit, and we'll, and we'll say, some evil beast hath devoured him, and we'll, we'll see what becomes of his dreams. You think you're going to have the power? We'll, we'll, we'll fix that, buddy. And Reuben, who's the oldest, heard it. And Reuben delivered him out of their hands, and he said, let's not kill him. Reuben said unto them, shed no blood, but do this, cast him into the pit that's in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. So Reuben does not say, I'm going to secretly try to get him out of the pit and get him back to dad. But he does say, hey, time out. <laughs> let, let's, let, let's think about the whole killing him thing for a second. Let's just throw him in the pit alive for now. And he intends to deliver Joseph from them. But, verse number 23, it came to pass as Joseph was come to his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. They took him, they cast him in a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. Now, that strikes me. You know, here, here these guys are, you know what, let's kill him. And they beat him up, they take his coat, they throw him in there, they're, they're intending to kill him. They're like, hey, you hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. Let's have a lunch break. And they sit down to like eat Pringles and peanut butter and jelly while, while they're, you know, contemplating murdering their brother. And you get the impression that like there's no conscience, that these guys are, are supremely cutthroat. You get the impression that maybe they've done this before somehow. Like th this is, is really messed up. And you don't know what Joseph is saying in this moment. Through all of this, the hatred, the vitriol, what they throw at him as they beat him up, as they put him in the pit, it never records what Joseph says. But if you read Genesis 42, 20 years later, Joseph will meet up with his brothers again. So spoiler alert, he doesn't die. Uh, but he meets up with his brothers again. And you find in Genesis 42 what Joseph was saying. And the brothers recount the episode. And they say, in this moment, that Joseph had anguish of soul, that he was weeping, and that he was begging them not to kill him. He, he knew what they were doing. He knew it wasn't a practical joke. He knew it was coming his way. And as he's in the pit crying for his life, they're just sitting up there eating the bread of malice and drinking the, drinking the drink of deceit, ready to do this until middle of verse 25. They lift up their eyes and look. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites, they came from Gilead with their camels, and they're bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? So like, there's, we don't get any money if we kill him, so let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our, our hand be upon him, for he's our brother in our flesh. And he's kind of like, after all, we probably shouldn't kill him. I mean, he is our brother, kind of. So his brethren were content. And they passed by the Midianites, the merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit. And they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. 
It is not hyperbole to say that Jerry Springer could run a season's worth of episodes on this family, okay? Like, this is a family that is messed up. And growing up in this home is no picnic for Joseph. But amid the infighting, amid the sin, amid the bad examples, amid the emotional manipulation, this young man gives us tremendous insight onto how to be thankful for nothing. How to be thankful even for your dysfunctional family. You say, okay, what does he do? What can we learn? First thing he does that you should learn is to choose responsibility. Now I'm going to start here. This is probably the toughest place to start, if, if I'm honest. Because I understand that to you, many of you who sit right here, many of you who are tuning in online this morning, that there have been some awful things that have been done to you. And the consequences of those things have been hard that the parents' divorce still messes with you, dad's alcoholism, the abuse as a child, the spouse that you married who's no longer the same spouse and they're not for the better. Those, those things are real. I do not for one second want to belittle that. I do not for one second want to minimize the hurt or what you've gone through. I would be the last person to say, it doesn't matter, you know, what they did or what they said or what they didn't do or what they didn't say. You know, it's small potatoes, it doesn't matter. No, 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 I'd never say that. But as lovingly and as pastorally as I possibly could, I want to tell you that playing the victim card and sitting and sulking won't help. I've talked to too many people that have used the phrase, you don't know what I've been through as a launching pad for an excuse for whatever they want to do. And that's not healthy. I'm not, I'm not minimizing the hurt and the pain because I, I know that it's real. I know that it's real. But it's not okay to say, well, well that hurt and pain now has come upon me and so I'm going to start to act in, in ways that are ungodly and unrighteous and sinful and, and incorrect. I think that uh, Viktor Frankl, this Jewish man who lived through the, through the Nazi imprisonment camps in World War II, said it best. He was a man who was humiliated and tortured and dehumanized, frankly, in a prison camp. And he said this, he said, the last of all great human freedoms, a man who had all of his freedoms stripped away from him, he said, the last of all great human freedoms is to choose one's response to any given set of circumstances. Now, the easier route or the more popular route <clears throat> is to use your circumstances as an excuse for your sin or for your dysfunctional patterns or for your foolish behavior, but the Bible never recommends that nor okays it. And there is a part to this. We're going to talk about thankfulness in a minute, but there's a part to your dysfunctional family or dysfunctional home, or maybe it wasn't even inside of your home. Maybe it's just been some relationship baggage that has come your way. There's a part to that that you have to understand. I, I can't scapegoat what I do now on that, and I can't just blame that all the time and, and say, well, my bad behavior is because of that. That's unhealthy, and you have to choose to take responsibility. Joseph is a man who you never see. He's going he's gonna to walk into Egypt. He's going to walk into Potiphar's house, he's going to go to prison, he's going to be dealt some hard blows, not just now, but in the future, and you never one time see him play the victim card or get down or just sulk in this. He works at it, he, 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 
he learns this lesson that I can't control what other people do to me or what comes at me, but I can control my response to that. I can't control them or, or what they do, but I can control how I respond. And he always responds accordingly. You've seen this borne out most clearly in Ezekiel chapter number 28, where the children of Israel, years after Joseph, began to say this cliche or this proverb, which is the fathers have eaten sour grapes and it set the children's teeth on edge. So this phrase they begin to perpetuate that basically means, well, dad did this, and so now I'm just kind of receiving the, the ramifications of it. And basically, their proverb of sour grapes and teeth on edge is a proverb that means it's daddy's fault. And God tells Ezekiel, I want you to go to my people, and I want you to tell them to shut up. And I want you to tell them to not say that. I want you to tell them that the soul that sinneth it shall surely die. I want you to tell them that you're responsible for your own behavior and what you choose to do, I'm going to hold you responsible for. And Ezekiel tells them this story about this man who was a, a godly giant, this man who loved God and worshiped God and praised God. And this man had a son who saw him do all this and his son was just as wicked as dad was righteous. And this son chose to be covetous and greedy and murder and, and, and to be just, just idolatrous and, and, and ignore the righteousness of dad. And this second born son had his own son, the third generation. And the third generation, Ezekiel says, he saw dad sin. And his, his dad didn't do it like, you know, be, behind a bush. His, his dad did it out in the open, flaunted it. And he saw all of the sin and all the wickedness. And the third generation chose to be like granddad. And he chose to be righteous. And he chose to choose what was right. And Ezekiel tells him the story and says, look, don't blame shift things to, to your mom or to your dad or to your family of origin. Don't say that it's their fault. It's not. You choose. And while if I knew your story, I'm sure it would cause me to be more sympathetic. I'm sure it would cause me to understand better or to understand how that behavior is easier for you. I've, I'm sure of that. But it does not excuse the wrong behavior. And you have to start, when you're looking at dysfunctional families, you have to start to say, you know what? Somebody has to change or break the cycle. Somebody has to choose to do right. And, and it's on me. I want to choose that. Now, to be clear, the Bible is very balanced and very nuanced on this topic. I don't mean to imply that what mom or dad or grandma or grandpa did has no effect on you and that it doesn't matter. I would never say that, and the Bible never says that. We know that as parents, we know that as leaders maybe of, of a business and having employees under us or as grandparents, that what we do does have a ripple effect on those that we are leading. We know for certain that, that our righteousness or our wickedness has an influence on those that are inside of our home. No doubt about it. And the Bible is very clear on that. So the Bible never says that their wrong behavior doesn't influence you. The Bible never says that their wrong behavior doesn't have an impact on you because it absolutely does. But it, it, it says this. It says that that influence is not a cause. Those are different. It's one thing to be influenced by behavior. It's one thing for it to cause your bad behavior. And it never allows you the, the right to say, you know what? that's the reason they're the cause it may influence it but at the end of the day you have to take responsibility and say you know what i i i didn't choose my family i didn't choose my parents i didn't choose that crazy i didn't choose the abuse i didn't choose that but i can choose my response to that so you have to start there but beyond that 
I would tell you to do this, and Joseph does it so well and his brothers don't. Avoid the spiritual matchstick of bitterness. I love that word picture because a small spark is going to, bitterness will just, it'll explode and it will light up on you so fast. Bitterness is this biblical idea of anger that has seethed and seethed and seethed until it hardens into this rebellious, vengeful conclusion. And an unforgiving spirit will often let anger take hold and you'll be angry at your circumstances or at your spouse or at your children or at your pastor or at the Democrats or the Republicans or whoever. And that anger will sit there and it will be rehearsed and embraced and coddled until bitterness sinks in and it's that moment where you start to feel justified to hate someone. It's when bitterness starts to come that you, you feel entitled to desire their ruin, where you feel energized to start to seek their downfall and want things to go against them. And this is exactly where Joseph's brothers are. These adult men who are looking at their younger brother and are so angry and so jealous and so envious and then so bitter that it it hardens and and it makes them behave in ways that are outlandish. Joseph is hated and his brothers are so embittered at him, but he never lets that become him. If you look at the life of this man, man, and we will over the upcoming weeks, you'll find that he is a man who never allows that to sink into his own heart. And he combats this bitterness, and he combats this unforgiveness, and he chooses instead to to be gentle and kind and forgiving and gracious and merciful. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're looking at or who you're looking at right now and it causes you to be bitter or it causes you to be angry but i i know you're human i know i am too and it's very easy to look if you're a teenager and say well you know he's going out with her and i wish he was going out with me or you know you're a bit older and and i'm i'm still single but you know they're getting married or they're they're the favorite in the family everybody knows it i mean everybody knows that dad loves her the most they're, they're the boss's lapdog. They're celebrating the results of the election while I'm ticked. And to let that anger and that bitterness creep in and harden and take control of you. And listen to me, that's a path you don't want to be on. It is a path you don't want to be on. You find biblically that we as Christians are to let go of all, here's the list, bitterness, Wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, let it be put away from you with all malice is what Ephesians 4 says. And then the next verse says, in contrary to that, contrast to that, you want to pick up, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. If you know the story of Joseph at all, you know that he is a beautiful example of a man who dealt with a family that he easily could have been embittered by, but he chose instead the, the kind, tender-hearted, forgiving route. Now, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not saying that if you're in an abusive situation that you should just stay there and be kind. I, I 100% would recommend calling the authorities, talking to me or another one of the pastors, or getting out of that. I 100% 
wholeheartedly would recommend it. If, if a kid came to me today and said I'm in an abusive situation, I would call the police immediately. Like, I've, there's, there's no place for just, you know, choosing to stay under that if you can at all get out of it. That's not what I'm saying, so don't, mis, don't misunderstand me. But what I am saying is internally in your heart, even in the midst of those situations, there should be this desire to, to let go of the bitterness and the wrath and the, and the evil and let that go and instead choose to be kind and tender and gracious and forgiving. And it's not just because it's good for them and you just let them off the hook or it's good for society as a whole if a bunch of people are gracious to each other. It's good for you. The reality is you're not an infinite creature. Okay, God's infinite. He's big, strong, powerful, knows everything, sees everything, is everything. I mean, God, God's infinite. You're finite. You're not made to handle it all. You're not made to be it all. You're not made to carry it all. And forgiveness is God's way of helping you release all of the emotional baggage that you've been stuffing in the suitcases and carrying around with you. It's God's way of helping you take all of the freight that can happen relationally in life. You know what I'm talking about? All, all, of, all of those hurts that came out of nowhere, all the times that they said or they did, the things that they shouldn't have that weren't fair to you. Choosing Ephesians 4.32 to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving is God's way of saying, look, you can be rid of that. The, I, don't, I don't mean to be too just like matter of fact about dysfunctional families, but here's, here's the reality. Nobody in this room can go back and change the past. And probably every one of us have things in the past that we wish we could go back and change. Things we did, but things that people did to us. Nobody can change that. And nobody is made to carry all of that resentment and all of that hurt with you for the rest of your life. Both, both are they're, they're irreconcilable with who you are as a person. So what do I do? You choose to forgive and you choose to lay it down. You choose to avoid the spiritual matchstick of bitterness. You choose to, to let go of that. And I understand that forgiveness is tough. I understand that forgiveness is more than just a moment where you know what, yes, today I'm going to choose to forgive. I get it's a marathon. It's a journey. It takes time many times to, to continue to forgive over and over and over. But God has created forgiveness as a way to release us from all of that, all of that baggage and all of that freight relationally that we're not meant to carry around. So choose to avoid it. Choose to be forgiving. We'll see in the upcoming weeks that Joseph was a man who did this. He was a man who, when he was in a spot where he could squash these brothers, where he had the power and he could kill them and he could put them in prison, he could do whatever he wanted to to them, that he actually acted in their best interest and he actually helped them and bestowed upon them and set them up for success and blessed them instead of being bitter about it his whole life. Thirdly and lastly, be thankful. And that sounds pretty intuitive, right? We're in the middle of like Thanksgiving month. The series is called Thanks for Nothing. Be thankful. Okay, yeah, check. I'll be thankful. Well, let's talk for a minute. Because we're talking about being thankful when it is easy to be thankful. So how do I be thankful when I look back and, and there's, you know, dysfunctional family? How do I be thankful for that? I'll give you two thoughts. I can't guarantee that both of them will apply to you. One will for sure. The first one may not, or it may. But I would recommend this, first of all, 
try to realize that it wasn't 100% bad. Now, I don't know your story. Maybe it was 100% bad. But most of the people that I've talked to who had a dysfunctional home, it wasn't 100% bad. And although Joseph had crazy all around him, he could look back at some moments that were really good. He could look back at Genesis chapter number 32 where Joseph is a young boy and his dad chooses to move the family basically across state. Dad takes family and they begin to move and Joseph is a young boy at this time and they get close to where Jacob, dad, grew up and dad realizes he's going to have to face his past which includes Uncle Esau. Uncle Esau is Jacob's brother. Esau, the one that Jacob had betrayed and deceived, and Esau, the one who vowed he would kill Jacob. And Jacob realizes that Esau and 400 soldiers are bearing down on his position and that he's going to have to face the music. And Jacob decides to send his family on ahead, and he decides to take some time alone, a day with God, all by himself. And there Jacob wrestles with God there Jacob surrenders to God afresh and anew Jacob comes out of that experience actually with a limp and I don't know if this ever happened the Bible doesn't tell us but I have to imagine that little boy Joseph saw dad walking into the family camp a day after his you know experience with God limping along and he ran up to him and asked dad why it was limping and Joseph as a young boy watched Esau and Jacob make up He watched them not fight with each other, not kill each other, but actually restore the love and restore the unity. When Joseph was 13 years old, we know in Genesis chapter 35 that Jacob decides to take his family back to Bethel. Bethel was this place where Jacob had first experienced God personally. He was a young man, a single man on the run for for his life. And there at Bethel, Jacob had this dream and God spoke to him and there's this ladder and these angels and all this stuff and Jacob takes his family back to Bethel and he tells them this is where it happened this is where I first had an encounter with God and and this is where I entered into a covenant relationship with God personally and and he encourages his family including 13 year old Joseph that I want you to enter into a covenant with God personally as well. And even in the midst of all this crazy, there still were these these spiritual markers of sorts. There were these moments where Jacob was a good dad, where Jacob led spiritually, where he did the right thing, where he wasn't passive, he was engaged. There were these moments that he could look back on. Prior to Genesis 37, the family had just gone through three deaths, kind of back to back to back. One of them was Deborah. Deborah was the nurse to Rebecca, uh, Joseph's grandmother. She's basically this longtime family friend, and Deborah dies, and the family shows up to the funeral, and at the funeral, they rehearse the story of Isaac and Rebecca and how they had lived godly lives and led godly lives for their family. The second death was actually Joseph's mother. She died giving birth to his younger brother, Benjamin, the last born to Jacob. And I don't know what that taught the family, but I have to imagine it taught them about the fragility of life. I have to imagine it taught them about the seriousness of of wanting to live for God in the moment. But then the third death, actually very close to Genesis 37, is the death of Isaac, Jacob's grandfather. A godly spiritual man. And there the family gathers again at the funeral and they recount all the ways that Isaac and Rebekah had lived for God and God had blessed them and God had, had, had chosen them and selected them. And so in the midst, what I'm trying to say is in the midst of all of this drama, in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of all this dysfunction, that is real. 
in the midst of all that, there are these moments that Joseph can anchor back off to and he can look back on and say, you know what, that was terrible and I never want that for my kids and I want to change that and those patterns of behavior shouldn't be there. I can see all of that, but at the same time, I can see that there are some moments that are good. There are some moments where, where that was loving, that was good, that was kind, that was, that, that was good spiritual leadership. There, there are these moments, and I would encourage you in your own life to look back, and instead of taking those top five events that are negative and nasty and, and tend to just override and trump all the rest of it, to look through some of that and to say, you know what, there actually are some moments that I can be thankful for. It wasn't all bad. You say, Pastor, it's not me. It was all bad. I'm telling you, if you were there, if you lived through it, if, if you knew it, it, it was all bad. How can I be thankful for dysfunctional family? For nothing. Thanks for nothing. How can I be thankful for that? Well, I want you to think of it this way. Who learns the importance of forgiveness more? The one with a dysfunctional family or the one with a picture-perfect family? Who learns how to combat bitterness more effectively? The one who's been hurt or the one who's lived a charmed life? Who learns how to love like Jesus and how to love the unlovely? The one who has great relationships always or the one who is surrounded by people who are hard to love? Here's what I'm saying. We're encouraged to live out forgiveness. You can't forgive until someone's hurt you. They go hand in hand. We're encouraged to lay down bitterness. You can't lay down bitterness until there's something to be bitter about. And could it be that all of that, that you'd never want for your own kids, that you don't want to live out, that you, that you hate, could it be that all of that has matured you and taught you and helped develop Christ-like character in you that you would have never had otherwise. I would suggest to you that it probably has. And I know that was the case in Joseph's life. Because you get to Genesis 42 and Joseph has his own son. It's 15 years after he's been thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. And Joseph has a son of his own, Manasseh. You say, okay, great, good for him. He names him Manasseh because this is what Manasseh means Chapter 42, verse 51, For God, said he, hath made me to forget all my toil and all my father's house. Okay, what does that mean? God, I, I'm, I'm going to name my kid Manasseh because I want to celebrate and highlight and praise God for the fact that he's made me to forget all of my toil and all of my father's house, the dysfunctional home. Does that mean he's forgotten their names, that he doesn't remember that they exist anymore? No. Does that mean that he's emotionally numb to what happened to him? I would suggest not, because in just a couple years after this, his brothers are going to show back up on the scene, and they're going to rehearse what happened, and he's going to weep about it, and it's going to hit him hard. He's not emotionally numb to this. What he's saying when he names his son Manasseh is that God in his mercy has brought me to the point to where this doesn't haunt me anymore. I, I'm officially at the point to where this is not eating away at me anymore. I am not caught in the web of my past any longer. And I'm so grateful for this that I'm going to take my firstborn son and I'm going to name him basically, God, thank you for your grace in my life. Thank you for working in me in amazing ways, not just despite my crazy family, but because of my crazy family. Joseph is a man at this moment when he names his firstborn. It's a thanks for nothing moment. 
It's God, you served me up a nothing burger with my family and all that toil and all my father's house. But look what you've done in me and how you've taught me through this. And God, thank you. And I would suggest that that should be the the case for us. We're going to pray in just a moment. We're going to have communion in just a moment. But I want to remind you of something before we do. Communion for us is a celebration of the, the death of Jesus, that he would die for us, that he'd give his body for us, his blood for us. And this is instituted the night before he dies at the Passover. And it's there at the Passover that Jesus sits to take the bread, to take the juice. And we're told that it was the same night in which he was betrayed that he did this, right? In the middle of relationship,